Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. End of the day. End of the day. It's all about practicing, practicing medicine. Practicing medicine at the end of one. So who talks first? You talk first. I talk first. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, or whatever time of the day it is for you. I want to welcome you to the show called At the End of the Day, a podcast about the lost art of medicine for those who are dissatisfied with healthcare's status quo. As always, I'm Andy DeLeo, and I'm joined by my two co-conspirators, Awes Mursa and AJ Montpettit. Hello. Good afternoon. How are you doing, fellas? Pretty good. Hanging in there. How about yourself, Andy? Hey, I can't complain. You know, it's rainy here today, um, but I just got off of almost seven days of sun, fall weather, which fall happens to, to be my favorite time of the year, so I can't complain. By the way, Andy, happy birthday to you. Thank you. I had no idea. Happy birthday. That's what I get for not being on Facebook. (laughs) Thank you, AJ. I'm not on Facebook either. Nor am I. Well, okay, Wes, what's your secret? Uh, We had a whole company-wide thing acknowledging Andy's birthday. Uh, You know, I I let it slip to someone, and yeah, from there, uh, they kind of gave me a dose of my own medicine. There you go. You need something to keep you humble. Exactly. And as you're aging gracefully... I think that's a great way to jump into the first topic, Andy. And, and how are you handling your mental stress as you get that old timer's disease starting to set in? How do you help protect your brain from the ravages of old age and pandemic quarantine? You know, that <laughs> that is actually a, a really good segue. You know, I think most of the, the topics that we're going to hear today uh, really do have something to do with mental health. The first topic happens to be specific to residents. The impact of the pandemic, COVID-19, the ritual of what it's like to be a resident, how we can sort of face that. The first article is an article that came from Kevin MD, and I'm actually going to kind of start with the end of the article, because I think there was two things that that sort of stuck out to me as I read this. The first one is that burnout is a symptom of a system that isn't working for patients and physicians. And when they say a system, they're alluding to what our vernacular is in culture right now. They're talking in terms of the healthcare system. Really what they're sort of stating is, is that This is a testament to the resilience of those of us working inside of the system. And if we fail, really what we're going to risk is a world where no one is satisfied with the care that's being provided to patients. And it's really a a failure of the resilience of the system to take care of our physicians. And the other thing that I want to highlight in this article as a summary is that what we're really doing is we're really calling out for us to all challenge our policymakers. What we need to challenge our policymakers with is that we need to change the way that we practice medicine going forward. You know, again, I think this, the thing that we all talk about, there's a difference between healthcare, there's a difference between medicine, and what physicians, especially residents, have gone into the world and to the field of medicine for is because they want to practice their art. During this pandemic, during this time of COVID-19, it's just 
more of a struggle. It's dramatically increasing the stress. Everyone's sort of in a limited environment and situation. We've got limited resources. We've got limited backup. We've got limited connections. And therefore, when, let's say, a staff physician happens to be impacted by COVID-19 or a fellow resident, the willingness or the likelihood of someone to kind of step up and fall in place and kind of back up for that person diminishes. And the reason why that is, is because the camaraderie, the teamwork, that connectedness that you had to your colleagues is continuing to sort of be impeded because you don't have that that stickiness, that connectedness from a human standpoint, because you're not seeing, you're not hearing, you're not interacting, you're not grabbing coffee or lunch with your colleagues on sort of a, a routine basis as, as typically would happen. And all of that is exacerbating this burnout that we're really starting to, to see with um, residents. Uh, and so with that, um, you know, I think I'll, I'll pause and and I'll open it up to the both of you because I know that you both read this as well. But what do you think about in terms of, you know, mental health when it comes to residents and how the the pandemic is really impacting all of that? Andy, you and I both have worked in a clinic with residents as they're undergoing their education and training. Um, and we see firsthand the struggles outside of, of a, you know, public health emergency what they have to go with on a day-to-day basis as far as keeping up with their classes, keeping up with their assignments, the readings that they have to do, the exams that they have to take, and then working with demanding physicians, uh, having difficult rotations. It's a lot. And, you know, the long hours, the weekends that they have to put in, it's demanding. And the only thing that gets them through is the relationships that they have with their fellow residents. That really plays a part in their education and their ability to thrive under those harsh circumstances. When you factor in a pandemic and the inability to go out for a drink after a, a hard day or, or to get together or just kind of have that um, you know, a water cooler chat, it's very challenging to not be able to do that. The only thing that you're wanting to do right now is to get your work done and leave the hospital as quickly as you can to minimize you know, exposure to yourself. Whereas before, it would be an opportunity to spend time and spend extra hours within a hospital or a clinic you know, just to kind of socialize with your, with your fellow residents. It's not the case anymore. And so, AJ, you know, I think just in in general, you know, some of the stuff that we heard is we know that burnout rates are skyrocketing even prior to, you know, the pandemic. Now with the pandemic, you know, that sort of rise in in burnout is going to continue to to increase. And with that, you know, there's also sort of the the other side of this is not only is it impacting physicians, but there's potentially an impact to patients, not only in just the access of being able to, to see physicians, but if physicians are fe- feeling you know, stretched too thin, um, maybe they're feeling unfulfilled in, in just having enough time to spend with their patients, there's also a potential that you know, sort of the, the do no harm, not as an intentional result, but an unintentional result, uh, that patients, you know, may not necessarily get the the care that they expect. So, 
how do you sort of think about that? As someone who's never been a resident or worked on the clinical side of healthcare specifically in that direct contact, I've seen it from a peripheral view. I think the best relation I can say is we have a system that is built to suck out every dredge of humanity and productivity from people on the clinical side. And I say that because we have seen, like you said, so much burnout, physician suicide, mental health disorders, all of that rise as time goes on and we're, we're taxing the system. And what strikes me is that a few years ago in our local 1 million cups startup pitch, we were seeing a company that was coming out with a type of physician health index product about, you know, these people are at risk for burnout. And if someone through their algorithm seemed suicidal, they would message the person with a link to the suicide hotline. I had a, I had a very not Midwestern reaction and I swore. I called it bullshit. And I, I was so mad at that being the decision-making ma matrix. And the reason why is a week previous to that, my cousin who was in healthcare uh, and who was extremely depressed had killed himself. He committed suicide a week before and nobody knew. Nobody had any idea. And it was just, you know, we can't really point because he didn't leave any details. But to me, the gut reaction of, of healthcare is to be reactionary and to do as little as possible when it comes to these issues. We, we've taken the humanity out of it. So to see a trigger to say, okay, you seem suicidal. Here's the suicide hotline. No, what we need is to embrace and reaffirm the humanity of the people that are working in healthcare because they are not the cogs of the machine that just keep turning and turning and turning and turning and turning. How hard could it be to build in that system instead of sending them a link to a phone number, it automatically connects them with somebody who's there to talk to them if need be. It's not hard. Amazon figured it out when they had the Amazon Kindles. And that was the example I used in my rebuttal to them was if Amazon Kindles, when they first came out, uh, not the, sorry, not the reading Kindles, the fires, the Kindle fires, the tablets, when those first came out, they were trying to help older people get accustomed to it by having a little panic button, a help button that tr got you ex immediately connected to somebody on the other side with a video chat to help you navigate your device. And I thought that was a great idea because a lot of people are uh, of a certain age tend to be very intimidated by new technology and new ways of doing things. So having that type of help button there that's always there ready to, to be pushed, immediate connection to a real person, great customer service, great understanding of the end user, very proactive. And I think when we when we look at healthcare as a system, it is a system that is built to be at all times reactive because we have dredged the bottom of the lake of any free time, of any ability to step back and think things through and think ahead. I think I think healthcare as we see it right now is the personification of that's the way we've always done it, taken to its extreme. So AJ, I, th I think you bring up a, a good point. You know, one is, you know, kind of we've built the perfect system and it's a system based on 
you know, this post-industrial revolution and, and we call it healthcare. Now you throw something like the pandemic into it and what was a perfect system from a production standpoint kind of blows it up. It's, you know, you the holes and the issues and, and sort of the chinks in the chain, they're amplified. And, you know, we're kind of seeing this as, as part of the output. I think there's another aspect to that. And that other aspect to it is, is that many people, whether you're a physician, a nurse, a therapist, a technician, whomever, someone that is providing sort of hands-on care to patients. I also think that there's maybe a stigma a set, uh, attached to if you raise your hand and say, hey, uh, I need help or I need a break. Um, I also think that there's just inherently this, this personal feeling of guilt. Uh, whether you raise your hand and say, I need additional help or I can't uh, do this on my own or you know, maybe I need a timeout or I need a break. Is that something we've built as a society? Because I I was just watching some old uh, 90s shows, uh, sci-fi shows, Stargate Atlantis. And it was really funny because even that close to modern days, they still kind of played up in the show the almost stigma about seeing a therapist. Because two people met in the hallway and they're like, oh, you're seeing that? No, I'm not going there. Oh, oh no, I don't need therapy. Is it considered maybe just culturally that it's always been a stigma and it's just very much more so in healthcare, like even worse, because you're supposed to be this rock of a person that it never wavers and is always strong for everyone else. OS, what are your thoughts on that? I think to a certain extent, but, you know, I mean, I go back to that commercial um, with Michael Phelps and, you know, it's become so mainstream now that mental health is a concern. It is an issue. People are acknowledging it outside of healthcare. Um, and even having athletes, you know, world-renowned athletes talking about it. I, I think it's not a stigma anymore. And we have to disassociate this issue with being a stigma. And that's preventing people from seeking the help that they need. I think we have to open it up. And, and just because you work in healthcare doesn't mean that you can't have these these issues or these problems and that you should be ashamed of it. I think, you know, be, being in healthcare, you should be able to acknowledge it, understand it, see the signs earlier and seek help and counseling. You know, one of the, the biggest issues with this pandemic is that you're not working closely with one another and hence you don't see what someone else may be going through. Whereas if you were you know, habitually working closely side by side with one another, you may see something as often actually offer assistance or help. Being trained in the medical field, you may be able to pick up signs and triggers that are leading to mental health. And it's a shame that, you know, there are so many residents that are fatigued and burned out because, you know, they're not getting the help and they're being overworked, especially during these times. One of the items that was identified in the article was, um, you know, how to how to potentially alleviate or address uh, some of this. And you know, one of the obvious things is just from a staffing perspective, you know, to make sure that we've got um, enough sort of staff positions, we've got enough nursing staff, uh, we've got uh, not only enough residents, but how do we open up more residency spots, um, and then. 
once you sort of understand it from a staffing perspective, that could allow you to give more time off to physicians, residents, um, other members of the care team. By being able to sort of build in the ability to take more time off, you could potentially sort of reduce that personal feeling of, of guilt. Hey, if I take a day off, it's impacting my colleague. Um, in addition to that, it's about ensuring that there's enough time built into just normal daily activities for self-care and wellness. Also having that time built in for, you know, research, enough time on, you know, hey, how do we do more volunteer work? How do we get ourselves involved with more committee works? I think that is a, a good sort of thing that needs to be highlighted. Just, you know, do we have enough staff to sort of encompass all of the different things that that need to be part of that solution. But I guess where I want to ask both of you, because I sort of know my own bias, when it comes to sort of the, the topic of self-care or wellness, how good are either of you at addressing your own self-care or your own wellness? I'll I'll take a step at that first because that's been a stigma that I've been working on being open and open with with people is you know I I deal with ADHD I was a late bloomer on that getting a diagnosis when I was in my 30s but and then in the last few years just realizing the also side effects of the anxiety and depression parts of it and how to manage that so I've I've done I take medication for it which helps take the edge off and for the for the ADHD and um, we, I just switched my anxiety meds, anxiety depression meds, just because I've had some general irritabilityness a lot lately. But I do, I do meet with a cognitive behavioral therapist who focuses with adults with ADHD weekly, and I also have time weekly with a mentor and a business development expert. And just starting this last week. I am now working with a personal trainer through Nerd Fitness, and I'll definitely give shout outs to Nerd Fitness because I've been a fan of that guy since long ago. The one thing that I've learned from my cognitive behavioral therapy is being proactive to build in time to take care of myself. And through conversations, through trial and error, I know that uh, before we did this call at around noon, I took some time to go for a little walk around outside for about a half hour. And that's the kind of things I need. I need to just take time during the day, shut everything down, put on a podcast, go for a walk. Or maybe I just need to get up and go do 10 push-ups just to get that blood circulating. But I've learned through trial and error that uh, certain things that I eat affect me certain ways. Like I hate a heavy grain diet because it kind of makes my brain feel foggy. I do better when I have a, a low grain, low carb kind of diet. And that's me. I'm not going to say everyone should do it. I also know that I'm most productive in the mornings before anybody wakes up because I have time to just be calm, focused. So it's just, it, it's, it goes back to kind of that Latin phrase of know thyself, you know, understanding what works for you because what works for a West right now in his situation, in his context will be completely devastating to me or you, Andy. So I think that's the, that's the first step is just starting to take time to get to know yourself better, know what works and what doesn't work and addressing it that way. How about you, OS? So it's interesting. My experience on this has always been that healthcare practitioners 
make the worst patients. And I will be the first one to admit I am the worst at taking care of myself. And so I'm going to do a quick poll here. Andy, are you the same way? Are you similar or do you take care of yourself? Uh, I'm the same way. Okay. So we have two guys that are in the medical profession and we both don't take care of ourselves. And then we have one guy that's on healthcare profession. He takes excellent care of himself. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's excellent, but I've, I've learned that I've had to do it. And trust me, I've been like a baby kicking, screaming the whole last, you know, five, seven years of taking the, taking the time to get to know myself, but it's, it definitely did not happen overnight whatsoever. It's the right approach and the right thing to do. And for whatever reason, in healthcare, we are our own worst enemies. We we know the facts. We understand, you know, what could happen and what the worst case scenarios could be. Yet, for whatever reason, we ignore the signs and the symptoms, and we mask them, and we carry on without actually acknowledging or treating them. I'll be the first one to raise my hand and say I'm the, whether you want to call it compartmentalization or boxes, um, that's that's who I am. I've got little tiny boxes and I put things in those boxes and I bury them way deep in the depths of my soul uh, and they stay there until, you know, I have to deal with them. Um, I'm sort of a you know, what's in front of me is what I have to deal with because there's a hundred other things that are going on. Uh, and in order to be productive and sort of move forward, um, the way that I sort of deal with life, whether it's personal or professional, that's what I do. I kind of put it in a box, that box gets filed away, and I sort of move on to the next thing that I have to, I have to deal with and address. You know, when it comes to my personal health, I will say I do try and take a walk at least once a day. I try to get my steps in. Um, re- recently, I think I shared with you guys, I was really bad with my addiction to Diet Coke. I was probably, if I'm honest, drinking a, at least a 12-pack a day. Uh, and I'm happy to say that I was able to kick that cold turkey. Uh, I'm going on for almost five weeks now where it's, you know, water and juices and and whatnot. I don't necessarily know if that's helped me, but I can at least say that the acute pain I associated with my Diet Coke intake uh, has gone away. But, you know, when it comes to sort of my routine, you know, fitness, physicals, exams, eye appointments, things like that, I'm a horrible patient and I do not commit. I don't do the things that I should on a routine basis. And it's just because I deal with what's here and now. And if I don't have any acute uh, conditions, then, you know, in my mind, I'm okay. Well, I'm very proud of you for kicking that habit. That is not an easy thing to do. And I will tell you one of the secrets for me kicking any bubbly drink habit was little bottles. Um, Mio, right? Is that what it's called? Mio? Yep. Those were those were a great little thing to just kind of help the transition out a little bit of that. And because it is fall, it's my favorite time for drinking about a half a gallon a day of tea. I love me some good green or oolong or black tea, just straight up. How about you, Wes? What's your favorite beverage of choice? <laughs> that sounds really good right about now. Uh, yeah, I, in the wintertime, I love drinking teas. I've got a, a couple of different diffusers that I use, and I usually try to buy like the the pure leaves and then just try to mix and match and make my own. So 
uh, that's always fun during the winter. So I actually think that this is a, a really good segue into the next topic on mental health. So with that, OS, I'll turn it over to you. Great. Thanks, Andy. I want to start off our second topic um, on workspace mental health by an assessment from Patrick Kennedy. Patrick Kennedy is a former U.S. representative and a founder of the Kennedy Forum. Uh, he believes that mental health impact of the COVID-19 pandemic will have a long-lasting repercussions. All employees should be planning now for re-entry strategy that includes better mental health care provisions before the inevitable costs are triggered by a rise in mental health issues, which are obviously exacerbated by this pandemic. Um, so we've all heard the phrase, oh, so-and-so burned out or so-and-so needed to take some time off work without really thinking about why they burned out or why they needed to take time off. Generally, what we're doing is we're working until we're so fatigued that we can only recover from stepping away from our workplaces. So I'll share an example with you guys about one factory policies and so-called commitment to their employees around mental health, specifically suicide prevention. There were a number of suicides that occurred in this factory, and this factory is located overseas, not the USA. And when management was pressed on the issue to do something, they decided it would be best to install nets to catch jumpers from falling to their deaths. And their thought was, in turn, this would also deter jumpers in the first place. Rather than dealing with the head-on, they decided to find this as a solution. So this brings me to my point of tick box men mental health care issues or mental health culture. Do we limit mental health as a human resources issue or look at it as a larger issue, such as a, cult a corporate culture-driven phenomenon? Do institutions simply check a box that they're aware and have programs in place to minimize employee stressors? and assist with mental health issues? Do they have in place a system to mental well-being? And then my question to you guys is, is it up to HR based on their policies or is it up to the culture of the organization as a whole to assist individuals that are having issues with uh, mental health care? I tend to be more on the side of building a culture that accepts that crap happens in life and that we all need help from time to time and making that okay. That you know, people are most productive when they don't have to fear missing a day of work because of something that they couldn't control in their life. And we had a close friend of ours who is uh, about our mother's age working and her father had a stroke and went and told her uh, manager, supervisor, whatever you want to call the person. And they told her, sorry, but we really have an important meeting today that you need to be at. And she just looked the person in the eyes and said, well, I guess I quit then. I walked out. Well, they're having a stroke? Uh, her her father had a stroke, and so she was going to run to the hospital to be with him. And she was told, well, there's a really important meeting today. That's a, that's absurd. Yeah. And it's also, yeah, it, it, it's beyond absurd. And it's just, I think, what you said, Andy, about the Industrial Revolution and kind of what we hinted at with the first topic is, we have stripped so much of the humanity out of work that it's almost like we have to reclaim the fact that we are people, that we we don't have the ability to schedule our lives around a strict nine to five time. Kind of like with uh, some of the students that I teach in my innovation and healthcare class, one of our challenges right now that we're working through is for this semester is healthcare access post pandemic. And one of the things that they one of the teams is going to be working on is the time that healthcare is available. 
And, you know, we kind of joke about it, but it's really a sick and sad state of affairs when you say, oh, you can't get sick on the weekends because they're not open. Don't get kind of sick. If you need to, if you get sick on the weekends, get really sick. There's a couple of things. I think many of us, whether you work inside of the world of medicine or you work outside of it, uh, many of us have worked for companies, businesses, corporations, whatnot, that you just feel compelled that even if you have a sniffle, sneeze, cough, you know, or something else maybe larger than that is going on, you just have sort of this feeling that you have to show up. That if I don't show up, you know, either someone's going to look poorly upon me, uh, someone else is going to be there to maybe take the, the position that I have and that I depend on for my livelihood, or I'm going to let my other teammates down. And so I think inherently, maybe it's part of the American culture, um, maybe it's part of our work ethic. I just think that for the most part, we've sort of been trained this way to, to sort of, you know, just kind of show up all the time, despite what else may be going on. However, I also think it's on all of us if we truly view ourselves as leaders to stand up and lead by example. And I've got a really good um, sort of personal case of this. Uh, when I happened to be traveling and working for uh, a company, it was you know a situation in which there was probably about 150 professionals that came. We descended for a week-long meeting and the Thursday, the meeting was going to conclude at uh, Friday on noon. Uh, that Thursday afternoon, I received a call, and I received a call that uh, my father was was sick, and this was right before his cancer diagnosis. Uh, so I didn't know that you know he had had cancer or whatnot. I just knew that he had really bad pain, and it was uncontrollable, and he was you know going to the hospital. I got up went ahead and I told uh, the general manager and vice president at that time, you know, that I was leaving. I had a personal matter to attend to. I packed my bags and I left. And I remember that later that weekend, I had four other senior leaders, so people that were higher up in the organization than myself, reach out to me and say that they were really impressed on the fact that I put my family before all else, and that I stood up, I acknowledged what was going on, and I excused myself. Uh, they said that, you know, in the, the 12 plus years that they had been with an organization or, or company, they had never seen anyone do that before. And it sort of was this turning point in the culture and the team that we had that we all supported one another and realized that people have lives outside of their work and their title and their jobs and that if they needed to attend to something with their family it was okay and that sort of resonated with me and and since that point in time it's something that you know i've tried to build into the teams that i put together the people that i work with because you know to to your point aj we need to realize that we're all human. And in order for us to have fulfillment, in order for us to be happy, in order for us to, for lack of a better word, be productive at work, 
we need to make sure that the the whole self is being addressed. So Andy, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper on this example that you just shared. Do you think that this was acceptable to your manager and your team's leadership because it was around, you know, medical care, it was around healthcare, um, even though it was a company outside of the hospital? Because you and I have both worked in hospitals and we I mean, at least for myself, leading my teams, if there was a family issue, it was no question. Just, you know, leave. Don't even worry about how many patients we have. Don't worry about what the day looks like. Don't worry about how we're going to handle it the rest of the day. You need to go take care of your family. So just go, whether it was a daycare issue, childcare issue, family member, you know, a pet, uh, it didn't matter. If someone said, I have to go do something, you know, my answer was always go immediately. Don't worry about what's going to happen here. We'll figure it out. Do you think it was because it was around healthcare and you know being in healthcare you kind of have that understanding that you know things happen and people get sick and we need to be there for one another and support them and do you think if and i'm going to turn over to you aj have you been in a seen an example such as this where a corporation or a company was un was not understanding under these circumstances the first part of your question os uh, i didn't share with anyone when I was leaving, kind of what happened, I just sort of said I needed to excuse myself and, and I left. Um, after the fact, people, you know, sort of realized why I left and, and, you know, explained that a little bit more in depth. But up to that point in time, what I had seen and witnessed, uh, my observation was people didn't act that way. Even if it was, um, a conflict of, of meetings or schedules or calendars or different things going on, even vacations, you sort of saw this mentality that if something came up, that was the most important thing and everything else, you know, in your own personal individual end of one life stopped because, you know, the, the company took priority. At least that was sort of my observation at that point in time. So I've had many a blue collar job there when you're working in construction or mechanical industry or from my from my personal experiences working in a plastic injection molding facility, you are a cog in the machine. So there's really they don't care. If you show up late, that's a write up. If you don't show, you're fired. I called in sick one day and got teased about having the brown bottle flu. And at the time I didn't even drink. And I was like, Hey, uh, I'm sick. I'm not coming in. I'm not drinking. And that's just, you know, the mentality for some of these industries, how they're built up is the bottom line is all that matters. So yeah, there's, it all depends on the culture of the work, but I think we're talking from a very privileged point of view of jobs that where I'm at now. And I think where we're all at is, you know, we have the luxury to be able to call in and say, I can't come in today or just send a text. I just emailed a company, one of my clients and said, Hey, I'm going to be gone for two weeks. Okay, cool. You know, I'm, I'm going to be gone tomorrow. And, you know, in, in other jobs and in other industries and in other places, you'd have to take that time off six months in advance and schedule everything around it. So I think, yeah, I've definitely seen a very inflexible and inhospitable environment for many industries that are just socioeconomically blue collared. And what matters is output and productivity. And it doesn't matter how you get there. It just matters you do. 
So Agent, I think this leads to a deeper conversation that employers need to start having with their employees. And there has to be a cultural shift in the way things are looked at. You know, leaders need to start modeling healthy behaviors by being open, vulnerable, connecting with their employees. Um, and I know it's easier said than done, but I think this is really important for any kind of organization that wants to build a culture that's going to show some sort of commitment to their employees and share a work-life balance. Yeah, and I think the people making the decisions or enforcing those rules are so far down the leadership role that the people who would make those decisions, unfortunately, like healthcare, when we talk about systems and how they're built, they don't care and they don't see the effects. So there is definitely something to be said about the current state of people looking into unionizing right now. And I think that, you know, that's, we need another hour or two to talk about that type of a topic. But I think in the past, and if people who are listening, you know, unions have done good. Some unions are bad. Some unions are great. Some people are idiots. Some people are smart. Uh, it's very contextually based. But without unions, without that type of things, we wouldn't have a 40-hour work week. We wouldn't have child labor laws. We wouldn't have weekends. So let's just put credit where credit's due and, and know, acknowledge that some good has come out of having unions. And I think a lot of workers right now, especially during a pandemic, are realizing what the heck is the point. And I think through all of our talks and through all of these discussions, we we have realized that our culture was on such a razor's edge. And I think we've fallen off. And I think we are discovering and tumbling down the rabbit hole with Alice, realizing how deep this hole goes of how far behind we are to the rest of the developed nations in this world to to how much we are missing out on a society that should care about one another systems from corporation to government that should be taking care of one another not having 90% of 99% of the people fighting over the table scraps type of system in our first two topics we're talking about you know systems and how the systems are failing and how the pandemic is showing this failure. And, you know, the the question that each of us have to ask ourselves is, so what can we do, you know, starting with myself or yourself or OS as an N of one, what is something that we can do to start to, to deal with this? And so I think that is a natural transition into the last topic. So thank you for that awesome transition that you got in front of me. That's great. But we we found an article on Medium about why stoicism is so darn popular right now. I would say that if you were to boil down that question, a real simplistic answer is people are realizing that happiness, fulfillment does not come from the materialistic accumulation of things or money, but there has to be a deeper meaning to life is found on something that's a little more long-term, a little more deeper, a little more universal. And Stoicism, uh, Marcus Aurelius, Diogenes, all of these guys are starting to become kind of rock stars. And people are looking to the writings of these old Stoics on how do we approach life? And I think it's people are disenfranchised with the quote-unquote American dream. And I can't remember who said it, but 
I think it was a comedian that said, of course, it's an American dream because you have to be asleep in order to believe it, which I think was George Carlin who said that. But when we think about how do we change our perspective on life and kind of that resiliency rewiring of our brains, the ideas of the Stoics have started to make a lot more sense when we're searching, I think, culturally searching for meaning, searching for more than buy something to feel better or you know we live in a culture where the fact that there is even a phrase called retail therapy that buying things will make you feel better when you're sad is it, it's mind-boggling and many more swears that i don't want to put out there because i i tend not to swear as much as i can but it's it's sickening and what i want to kind of stoke the fire on for you you two is have you ever read any stoic stoic writings like meditations by marcus aurelius uh what what is your experience with that and where do you go to when you try to find something to cement your worldview on the things and events and um, motives around you yeah so i'll i'll share a quote and the quote is nothing will stand in the way of your acting justly and soberly and considerately so I think, you know, in the times that we are in currently, the political position that we're in right now, and, you know, whomever you believe in, it doesn't matter. There's a lot of decisiveness, and but none of that matters. You can still stand with people. You can still find common ground. And, you know, this, this relates really towards building relationships with one another. And I think that's really important, and that stands out for me. I think, you know, the relationships that I have with you guys with our customers, with our patients, with our colleagues, with our with our friends, with our neighbors, um, those are all important. And it's just, you know, kind of level setting and uh, finding common ground. So for me, uh, I've read meditations um, a couple of different times. Um, it's a it's a great book. Um, actually, Ryan Holiday's book on, you know, sort of the every day there's a reading just, you know, one or two pages of uh, stoicism. Um, I've had that book for at least three years. Um, I actually have it on my phone as well. Uh, I read it on a daily basis and it helps me just sort of level set myself for the day. I know personally I've got, you know, peaks and valleys uh, where for the most part in front of people, meetings, uh, presentations, whatnot, that I tend to be, you know, kind of level headed, even keeled. Uh, and, you know, stoic to, to a point. Um, but there are moments in time where things really kind of get underneath my skin and I get very animated and the, the Latin passionate side of me uh, definitely comes out uh, with hands flailing around as I'm, you know, speaking. What I like about it is, is that it does give clarity, it does give calm, um, and it does help to build this mental fortitude on just how to deal with life, whether it's people, whether it's situations, and sort of understanding that that context of life, each of us has our own experience. And that experience is neither good nor bad, it just is. And uh, for me, it's really helped me kind of remember that and build that as a muscle uh, in my life. Um, so I, I really appreciate it. I think that's a really good point that you're making about how you 
perceive the things around you before they happen. So you're kind of setting your mind up to be able to handle situations in a specific way. I think that's what people are starting to realize is we've been told, and especially our generation and those around Gen X, millennial, zillennial, whatever you want to call yourself, that we were given this mantra of go to college, go to college, go to college, go to college, go to college. And now we're seeing this complete unraveling of everything we thought was going to happen and everything we thought was supposed to be quote unquote the way to do things. And I have, I'm just looking at meditations right now on my uh, notes and highlights on Kindle and I've got, you know, 77 highlighted and I'm sure if I read it again, I will definitely have more. But I think that I want to end today's podcast on a quote from Marcus Aurelius and I think this is a great way to to reframe how we think about things. But I think this is a really good day of just how to start your day on the right foot. So he wrote, when you wake up in the morning, tell yourself, the people I deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous, and surly. They are like this because they can't tell good from evil. But I've seen the beauty of good and the ugliness of evil and have recognized that the wrongdoer has a nature related to my own. Not of the same blood or birth, but the same mind, and possessing a share of the divine. And so none of them can hurt me. No one can implicate me in ugliness, nor can I feel angry at my relative or hate him. We were born to work together like feet, hands, and eyes, like the two rows of teeth, upper and lower. To obstruct each other is unnatural. To feel anger at someone, to turn your back on him, these are obstructions. And I love that, because what he's talking about is... When you interact with people, it's so easy to other others. It's so easy to just be dismissive of their attitudes as, oh, that guy's a jerk or that guy's or that lady's just being totally crazy or whatever you want to fill in the blank with. I think of Mother Teresa's quote about treat everyone with kindness because they may be having a rougher day than yourself. And that's what Marcus Aurelius is talking about, is that we are all of the same mind, possess the same share of the divine and when you see somebody reacting in a certain way, that there's something more to it than that. Pulling back into what we discussed in the last podcast about the word sonder, when you realize that everybody has such a deep, rich, full life as yourself, I think that's a part of maturity. And Marcus Aurelius, Mother Teresa, all of these brilliant people take it that step further is when you realize that their, their lives are that detailed and that rich that you know yourself that the reactions that you have aren't necessarily because of the thing in the immediate moment, but something deeper, something from before, something that just sets you off. And if we train our brains to see the day like this, then we start the day on a very good way. I think that's a wonderful wrap. And, you know, to sort of play off of it, um, while that's, you know, a really good way to start the day, I think at the end of the day, uh, what we all need to remember is, is that we need to be truthful and we need to do what is right. So for those listeners out there that work in the world of medicine and realize that what we're trying to do is change the status quo, this thing that we uh, do that's called healthcare, is that it's all about humility. Realizing that while what we see, hear, observe, and experience shapes our reactions and our thoughts, that we need to realize that the eyeballs that we're looking at during that moment in time 
that they have their own experience and context. And so we need to go into those interactions and we need to lead with humility. Uh, so with that, uh, I think that's a good way for us to wrap up, AJ. I think so too. So I will just sign off here. My name is AJ Montpetit and you can find me on all of the social medias of LinkedIn and Twitter at AJ Montpetit. And this is Awes Mirza and you can find me on Twitter at Awes F Mirza. And as always, you can find me, Andy DeLeo, better known as Cancer Geek, on all of the socials uh, as at Cancer Geek. And remember, at the end of the day, it's all about practicing medicine at the end of one. <laughs>